0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 20th, 2011. We're going to be doing our light edition for the week today, and I have to warn you that uh, with Holy Week upon us... uh, Good Friday may be another light edition, focusing in on Christ and Him crucified. Just want to give you a heads up. I think it would be blasphemy to do a bad sermon review that day. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which to help you think biblically, help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, silly, weird, bizarre things being said about God uh by Christian pastors of all places uh from pulpits and that ought not be the case. It's not like God's word is really all that confusing. And so Uh, We, unfortunately, have to take people's bizarre ideas and open up the biblical text and do the comparative work, and what we do is extremely politically incorrect, but it's a, a, a job that needs to be done. It's the job that the Bereans were commended for doing. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I've got two lectures on pretty much the same topic, one short, the other long, and both of them by Reformed guys, And uh, I'm not going to quibble with the the areas where this Lutheran would disagree with them. I don't consider that to be uh, a worthy topic of discussion today. Uh, Maybe in the future edition of Fighting for the Faith I can tackle some of this stuff, but I've chosen both of these lectures because of their excellence, their excellence in biblical exegesis, their excellence in understanding and proclaiming the proper understanding of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, the doctrine of the atonement. Both lectures um, deal with the topic of the Exodus, the Passover, uh you know and uh, and its connection to Jesus's death on the cross and how that plays into penal substitutionary atonement or what we lutherans call the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. It both they're both the same ideas here. So here's the here's what we're going to do. I'm going to be playing uh, a short lecture to begin with by doc, Dr. Michael Horton entitled Good Friday When God Passes Over and he's going to be uh, taking Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30 and running it through, uh, I think, Exodus chapter 12. And then when we're done with listening to Dr. Horton, we're going to uh, pay a couple of bills, and then when we come back, we're going to listen to uh, Dr. Mark Deaver of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And uh, his—this is going to seem a little out of place— this is a sermon that was preached during the Christmas season, but it was part of a long series that uh, they did at Capitol Hill Baptist Church a few years back Uh, uh, This name of the series was Pierced for Our Transgressions. As you listen to both of these men, and I would say specifically as you listen to uh, Dr. Mark Deaver, you will will do good, you will do well to notice the stark contrast, the stark difference between the reverent, exegetical, proper hermeneutical, reverent handling of God's Word and, proclam- and proclaiming the truth and focusing it on Christ that these men both do. And I would even say that Dr. Mark Deaver does, well, excellently. And just re- in the back of your mind, think about all the seeker-driven silliness that we review here day after day here at Fighting for the Faith. C- you know, compare what you're hearing today in the in in just the way these men are approaching the text compared to, like, uh, a Stephen Furtick, a Perry Noble, a Mark Batterson, uh, the uh, the guy from Viva La Verve in uh, Las Vegas, uh, even Rick Warren, if you keep that, you know, at least not in the front of your mind, but just tucked over to one side, and uh, I might even remind you of that at the break, Um You'll begin to see there's a big, 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 big problem with the silly, not qualified so-called pastors that have taken over and overrun many of the churches today. That's just kind of a side note. All right, so without any further ado, here is Dr. Michael Horton and his first lecture in discussing the Exodus and the Passover and its connection to Jesus' death on the cross, entitled Good Friday, When God Passes Over. Here is Dr. Michael Horton.
1: Well, turn with me, if you will, to the New Testament. Our New Testament reading is Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Always want to sing. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Just following Judas's agreement to betray Jesus, we read, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. To the Mount of Olives. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Our text is primarily going to be based on Exodus chapter 12, our Old Testament reading, particularly the institution of the Passover, the first Passover and the Last Supper. This first Passover has as its background, of course, the ten plagues. Each plague demonstrated God's sovereignty over the gods of the Egyptians. This was a contest. This was a war in heaven between God and his armies and Satan and his armies, represented by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And each of these plagues demonstrated God's sovereignty over all of the false gods of Egypt. It began with the plague against the Nile. The Nile was turned to blood. And here, represented in this satire almost, is a sword driven through the god of Hopi, the Egyptian god of the Nile, turning the Nile to blood as if God had destroyed the god of Egypt. Frogs had been a sign of fertility. And... Uh, Every spring, the Egyptians looked forward to the frogs because they were, they were a happy sign, sort of like bunnies at Easter, uh, a sign of fertility. And so God says, you like frogs? Here's some frogs. The whole land was creeping with frogs. Again, God was sarcastically showing his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt, as he did in the third plague, the plague of the gnats. Failing to produce gnats themselves, the magicians appeal to Pharaoh. They say, this indeed is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart hardens. And with each successive plague, Pharaoh's heart hardens even more. There's the plague of the flies. And only the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are living, is preserved. God even now shows that his people belong to him and are separate from Egypt. There's the plague against the livestock, where the livestock die, but once again, none of the livestock of the Israelites. There's the plague of the boils, covering even the magicians. The plague of hail, the plague of locusts, followed by the plague of darkness. And now, just before the institution of Passover, it is announced that God will send one final plague, the tenth plague, death of Egypt's firstborn of man and beast. This is the seed of the woman promised in the proto-gospel in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The city of God versus the city of man. The armies of heaven and the armies of the earth in contest through their earthly representatives. Before the exodus... And before that terrible night, when that avenging angel will make his way to all the houses in Egypt, God institutes and Israel follows the institution of this sacred sign. First of all, we see in Exodus chapter 12, a sacred time. There is a sacred time. Marking great events in redemptive history, memorials of time as well as stone are raised in the sight of the people. And this is a memorial of time. This month is singled out of all of the months. The exodus of God's people from bondage establishes Abib, March, as the new year of the Jewish calendar. So significant would this event be. A new creation it will represent. So that just as we in the Christian calendar start our years with... After Christ. So here, the Jewish calendar began with God's march against Egypt and his deliverance through the Red Sea. The Exodus, in fact, is all about firsts. And here it begins with time. It's the beginning of time, God's new creation. God claims the first fruits of the year as a representative of the whole calendar, just as he will claim the first fruits of the Israelites as representative of the whole nation. It's sacred because God is doing it. There's nothing particularly special about March. There's nothing particularly sacred about this day on the calendar, except it is the day on which God will do something. And because of that, it will be remembered. So this shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And it's repeated again in verses 24 through 28. God is making an emphatic point here. Eventually, the Jewish Passover developed a series of catechetical questions for children to ask during the feast based on these very verses. And the sacrament will not cease when Israel arrives in the Holy Land. For not even Canaan will really be that ultimate promised land. Remember in Hebrews, Abraham was looking for a better city. If if Joshua had led them into the real promised land, there would have been no further need of God's plan of redemption, says the writer to the Hebrews. And you shall tell your son in that day when you enter the land... This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And it's called Passover. The Lord's Passover. Passover from an Akkadian verb meaning to appease. To propitiate. Although they too deserve That avenging angel's strong arm of wrath, the people will be spared the judgment coming upon Egypt, not because of their righteousness, but because of the lamb's blood sprinkled on the doorpost. It's the only reason the avenging angel would pass by. On the first and last days of the Passover feast, there will be a sacred assembly, a Sabbath rest. As seven is the number of rest, so the weeks Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, will be marked by Sabbath time rather than normal time. This is really amazing. What God is saying here is, on those days, heaven will come down, just as it just as it it, it uh, did in the ark. Just as it did in the tabernacle and then finally in the temple. Heaven will come down even as they are strangers in Egypt. And on these days, the Alpha and the Omega will descend to be present in power with his people. We will be taken off of Pacific Standard Time and put into, inserted into Sabbath time, heavenly time, the clock that God himself is on. The Sabbath will then be a holy intrusion of the age to come into this present age. Sabbath time. Sacred time. Special time. Secondly, we see in these passages that there is a sacred people. A people set apart from, uh, from Egypt for God. We see it in the fact that God spares them from the plagues that he sends upon Egypt. Even though they all live in Egypt, they are set apart from the plagues. As God says in Deuteronomy, it's not because of their righteousness, but because of his unconditional oath to Abraham that God has chosen Israel, despite Israel's own sinfulness. And so like the day that is chosen for this celebration, the people who are chosen for this celebration have no intrinsic worth. There's no reason this people should have been chosen rather than another people, except God and his sovereign pleasure. God acted on that day, and God acted toward this people, and that's what makes the day and the people sacred. He has chosen them, and He will in due time redeem them from the hand of Pharaoh and set them in His own land. And already He has shown that they are separated out of the world. In verse 3 here, this is the first time Israel is called a congregation. Cahal it's the first time Israel is used uh, 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 is described in religious terms. It is now a church. It is now called out. Passover is that significant, that this is the first time Israel really is called a church. Sacred time, sacred people, and sacred matter. That sounds strange, sacred matter. Now, it doesn't mean we're earth worshipers. You see, earth worshipers think think that things are intrinsically sacred. A mountain is intrinsically sacred. Uh, A lake or a stream is intrinsically sacred. But no, here as with the others, the matter that is sacred is sacred because God has separated it unto himself to be used for sacred purposes. In this case, it's a slain lamb. Sprinkled blood. And unleavened bread. It says, Every man shall take a lamb according to the house of his father. A lamb for his household. Notice the covenantal implication here. didn't have just everybody, every individual taking a lamb for himself, but it was a lamb for a household. It says, The blood was put on the doorpost of the household. As the promise comes through the male seed of Abraham, so even the lamb must be a male of the first year, Without blemish. See, even the lamb must be a firstborn male. And like the sacrifices, it must be a perfect lamb without defect. It will be this spotless firstborn male lamb that will be slaughtered so that Israel can live. And the flesh was to be eaten in haste that night. Not only was the lamb to be sacrificed, But Israel was to eat the flesh of this lamb, to participate somehow in the passing over that this lamb will bring. They were to eat it in haste with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Bitter herbs representing the suffering and bondage that they experienced in Egypt. And to further underscore the hasty character of this sacrament, they are to eat it dressed for the road. All dressed and ready to go. In other words, in anticipation of God's deliverance. They weren't just to sit there at Passover. They were to be ready to go in the Exodus. And none of the bones of the lamb were to be broken. So closely did this match the true lamb, whose bones all remained intact. The Gospel writers are all careful to note. Just as... The time isn't sacred in itself, and the people aren't sacred in themselves. The lamb isn't sacred in itself, but God has used the lamb to be the sign that is attached to the thing signified, the life that He will give through His Son. Sprinkled with blood, the blood on the doorposts, you and your house, again, the covenantal terminology here. Here's a wonderful representation of what happens in salvation, isn't it? Why, why did the avenging angel pass over the, the houses of the Israelites and leave their homes undisturbed? Was it because they were more devoted? Was it because they were more committed to the law and the ways of God? Though well, they certainly were. Was it because they had surrendered all? Was it because they had given up so much and suffered so greatly at the hands of the Egyptians? No, there was only one reason the avenging angel passed by and that was because there was blood. The kind of blood that you have in your veins. Blood on the doorposts. That alone kept the avenging angel at bay. It's nothing in us. It's nothing that we could do. Could my zeal no respite? know? Though my tears forever flow, not for sin could these atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It's what God does outside of us that is our ultimate security, not that which he does in us, which is nevertheless a great comfort. What you also notice here is it's the same God who is both the avenging angel for those outside of the covenant and the redeeming angel for those inside of it. You don't have two gods. A bad God who's all about hell and wrath and judgment, and a good God who's all about peace and love and kindness. The same avenging angel here is wrath for one and redemption for the other. And he is, as the angel throughout the Old Testament is, none other than the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Unleavened bread. On the first of seven days, every bit of leaven is to be removed from the house. And everywhere in Scripture, leaven, yeast, symbolizes sin. By not only sacrificing the lamb, but feeding on its flesh... God's covenant people, though sinful in themselves, were incorporated into the Lamb of God and clothed themselves in His righteousness just as God had clothed Adam and Eve in the sacrificial skins so long prior to this. We talk in theology about the relationship of the sign to the thing signified in a sacrament. The sign in baptism is water, The thing signified is regeneration. In the Lord's Supper, we have the signs of bread and wine. And the thing signified forgiveness and everlasting life. And so too too, here in the Passover. The sign is a little bit different. The Passover feast is a little bit like the Lord's Supper, but slightly different. But the thing signified is exactly the same. The Israelites, this is what's so amazing, the Israelites in that first Passover, we're feeding on the same matter, ultimately, as what we'll be feeding on tonight. As they were eating that lamb and as we will be eating the bread and the wine, we're feasting on our heavenly Savior. They were looking forward to Him. Not all of the lambs and sheep and goats that this world can afford, but the final Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the matter. It was He on whom they were feeding, which meant death for Egypt without the blood on the doorpost and without a sacrifice on the table, and yet life for the Israelites. By sprinkling the blood on the doorpost, the Israelites were trusting in the promise of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The sign, the Passover feast, was so closely linked to the thing signified, everlasting life, that it's actually called the Lord's Passover. It's actually called the Lord's Passover, just as Jesus calls it, the new covenant in my blood. That's how closely the sacrament is linked, with the sign sign. And the things signified. In other words, the feast itself is, in a real sense, the passing over. To be sure, the avenging angel would come at midnight. He was not coming as they were were feasting. And yet, they were in that feast already experiencing, in anticipation, the passing over that would come later that night. And when the Israelites in future times celebrate this feast, It will not only be in memory of God's great saving act in the past, but will be each new generation's way of receiving precisely the same benefits as their fathers had received. Pharaoh tells Moses and the Israelites to leave. After that tenth plague, he concedes victory, and the Egyptians begged them to leave quickly before God further judged the nation. They went loaded down with gifts. Here, take this. Take my furniture, take my car, take everything. They just wanted the Israelites out of the land. After four centuries in Egypt, the Israelites, numbering as many as one million adults, move out in companies toward the Red Sea. And in addition, many Egyptian converts leave with them, showing by anticipation that God was already then creating a missionary people. Not only does Israel... The suffering servant leave his bondage. He leaves in a triumphant procession, so much so that the scene reminds one of a conquering general returning from a campaign with the spoils of war. And it was 430 years, just as promised to Joseph. 430 years to the day. Our New Testament text, therefore, makes a lot more sense In this context of the first Passover. The plot to kill Jesus coincides in God's timing with the Passover feast. And for good reason. During this time the streets of Jerusalem would be filled with bleeding sheep. Everywhere you would go. Sheep, sheep. Everywhere. Sheep that had been brought there to be sacrificed for Passover and eaten. Doubtless as Jesus heard the cacophony of the bleeding sheep all around him he recalled his cousin's early announcement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine that, walking around Jerusalem during Passover, knowing that you were the reality, and these were the signs that as of this day had now become obsolete. Here the avenging angel of the first Passover is incarnate. Both the judge and the judge. That avenging angel who brought God's wrath down on all of the Egyptians but saved the Israelites because of the blood. When he looked down at the blood, he was anticipating his own blood being poured out for his people. For the blood of lambs and goats cannot take away sin. With that whole history of redemption swirling in his mind and in his heart, the Lamb of God institutes this Passover of the New Covenant, having already declared, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall never come into judgment, but will have life everlasting. Like the first fruits of the harvest and the first fruits of the womb, the first fruits of the flock, Jesus is the firstborn and the first fruit of the new world. Just as the Passover anticipated the exodus through the Red Sea and the arrival into Canaan, Jesus tells his disciples that this sacrament now anticipates his resurrection and second coming. As long as you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes but it's not only a memorial we're not just remembering here we're not just closing our eyes and thinking about what it must have been like for Jesus to hang on the cross sometimes we sing the song were you there when they crucified my Lord no I wasn't I don't know how to remember events I was not present at but I do know this Remember what God has done to save me by pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving as we receive the bread and the wine is a marvelous gift of God. Passover feast was just a shadow of this new covenant sacrament. Hebrews tells us that through this sacrament, we taste of the heavenly gift. Peter addresses his first epistle to scattered pilgrims. Elect according to the foreordination of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because when the time had fully come, God sent His firstborn male lamb without blemish into the highways of Jerusalem to be the final sacrifice for the sins of all who call upon his name. And Jesus knew, think about this for a moment, Jesus knew all of this as he was reclining with his disciples that night, even if they didn't. Even though their minds were on the shadows and earthly Passover that they thought they were celebrating. We know better than they did what our Lord was doing that night because we see with a fuller picture of the New Testament revelation. We know what was going on that night and Jesus knew that even though the disciples didn't, he was doing this for them, he was instituting this supper as he would be laying down his life for them. And he did this just before he would surrender to his tears in the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested. The sign and the thing signified are inextricably joined by the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper. So the Apostle Paul could say, This bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This cup which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? And although our crucified and risen Lamb is not enclosed in the elements... We are assured by his promise that whenever we eat this drink, eat this food, and drink this drink in faith, we are mysteriously feeding on the very body born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, raised, and is at the right hand of God for us. This is the true food and drink for everlasting life. It is the Lord's Passover. Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, purge out all the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you are truly already unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending our Savior in the fullness of times in which your purposes have been finally realized. And like that first Passover night, this sacrament is both life and death. Death to those who eat and drink without faith and repentance, and life for those who do. For those who participate in the sign without embracing the thing signified, it can only bring divine judgment. But for those of us who receive not only the bread and the juice, but Together with it, the saving body and blood of the Messiah by faith, you have assured us that when that suffering servant returns once more as the victorious Savior, you will be with him in his triumph. And we will eat and drink with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, in his Canaan land, where the festival never ends. Help us now, Father, by your Spirit, to go now to taste of the powers of the age to come, that age which has even now dawned in our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Great lecture. That's part one of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to pause there for a minute, take uh, you know, take some time to pay some bills, and when we come back, we'll be listening to another lecture on, you know, really drawing the connection—the biblical connection between Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the Passover lamb from Exodus. So you don't want to miss that, and Mark Deaver will be up next. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst! Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching! Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy! These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible, Bible pants. You have know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power, praying, power, preaching, power, praising, power, fasting, power, meditating, power, laughing, power, spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, and they'll be holy too! Make your babies run abnormally fast! They'll be as fast as Elijah! People will watch them running and think they're Elijah! They'll race as fast as Elijah! In a race with the actual Elijah! And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to Israel! Hey, go with the for sure thing! Don't gabble on your afterlife! Jesus! Try Bible Thirst! The energy that will make you <laughs> holy! <laughs> Keep
0: more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit Pirate Christian com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's Pirate Christian com forward slash cheap. Ba, 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 ba. Warning, penal substitution is not some theory of the atonement. It's how the Bible describes the atonement. It's not the whole thing, but it's the foundation of the whole thing. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero. All right, now it's time for part two of today's light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Normally we only do one thing. Today we're doing two things, but really on similar topics. So uh, the next thing that you're going to hear is uh, Dr. Mark Deaver of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's going to be uh, doing an expositional sermon uh, from his sermon series, Pierced for Our Transgressions, talking about the Passover and Exodus 12. And this thing is... Yeah, just brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you, and and, and may even play some more sermons from this series uh, here at Fighting for the Faith uh, during our light editions. So uh, it it's that good. Anyway, don't be confused because this is. It starts off. You'll notice that he preaches this during uh, the Christmas season. Uh, so don't let that throw you. Even though here we are in the middle of uh, Holy Week. So here we go. Here's uh, Dr. Mark Deaver.
2: peace on earth will come to stay when we live Christmas every day. So said Helen Siner Rice on one of her thousands of greeting card verses, and it is this sentimental view of Christmas that our society revels in and wallows in this time of year. Family at home, Vacation from work, special decorations and presents, all mixed in a stew of musically-aided nostalgia. People aren't aware of how much of what we know as a celebration of Christmas is really pretty recently constructed. So, for example, uh, Santa's always red suit comes to us courtesy of Coca-Cola ads in the early 20th century. Or his fur-trimmed cap and fat-bearded face may come to us from the 19th-century cartoonist Thomas Nast. Christians have a mixed history with Christmas, leaving aside the famous Puritan opposition to Christmas. The use of Christmas as a sort of summary of all the good in human nature ironically undermines exactly what Christians understand Jesus to be all about. Do you know what I mean? If people really think things like peace on earth will come to stay when we live Christmas every day, then Jesus becomes at best a moral exemplar and a fairly unrealistic one at that. Every day in this world does not dissolve into a moistened eyed version of the last scene of It's a Wonderful Life. To the Christian... What Christmas is all about is not an oasis from selfishness, a realizing what we could be if we would only all listen to our better angels. It is instead about the incarnation of the Son of God coming to save us from ourselves, from our own sins, and from God's righteous judgment of us because of them. As one writer succinctly put it, Calvary is the explanation of Bethlehem. Calvary is the explanation of Bethlehem. And so it's appropriate that we begin a new series this morning, a series of studies on the doctrine of the atonement. Why did Jesus come? To atone for our sins. What Michael Lawrence and I want to do in this series of studies, these 14 expositional messages from now until Easter, is simply to show that the doctrine of penal substitution, that is, of the penalty that we should bear being substituted on someone else. The penal substitution of Christ for sinners is clearly taught in the Bible. By penal substitution, I mean that Jesus was a substitute taking the penalty for those who actually deserve it in our place. For various reasons this traditional Christian idea has fallen on hard times in some quarters. Secular writers see the idea of Christ as sacri- sacrificing himself for sinners as a vestige of primitive religion and re- with religion always evolving into a more bloodless humane theology and the practice of peace on earth and goodwill to men. So the assumption is that in the Western world, human sacrifice was replaced by animal and that that too is gradually phased out and human society is now largely evolved out of such superstition. Belief in sacrifice fades with belief in God, which in turn fades into simple belief in ourselves. And that's the way of truth, people think. Well, we're used to hearing such thoughts from unbelievers. But in recent years, even some self-confessed Christians have expressed great discomfort with the idea that Christ atones for our sins by his death. Especially this idea of him being a substitute, taking the penalty that we deserve. Often such discomfort is expressed in language objecting to Those who say that penal substitution is the only way to talk about the atonement Christ has made. But friends, I don't know of anyone who does suggest this is the only way to talk about the atonement Christ has made. There are many images in the New Testament that are used. Redemption, that of economically buying someone out of slavery. Uh, There are medical, that of overcoming things. There are diseases. There are images of victory and warfare as Christ leads us to victory. There are many images the New Testament uses. But... It is a deeply biblical way to understand what Christ has done at Calvary when we speak of him as our substitute. And in these studies, of these crucial texts of Scripture, we hope to see this and understand this and exult in this, that God has loved us this lavishly in Christ. If you want to know more about this, uh, I would encourage you, to look at a book that Michael and I will both be referring to through the series called Pierce for our transgressions written by Michael Ovey and some others that will soon be available on our bookstall and in one section of this uh, the authors go through these fourteen passages of scripture it's a great book, it's just come out recently on the atonement and the authors have done a good job. Well we begin our series today by looking in the Old Testament at the book of Exodus the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the second book in the Bible Exodus begins by looking at Moses' birth and calling for the first four chapters. And then starting in chapter 5, Moses obeys God in his call to confront the great Pharaoh of Egypt, demanding the release of the Israelites and declaring God's judgment on Pharaoh's arrogant refusal by announcing his divine plagues on Egypt. And in our chapter this morning, we come to the tenth and final divine plague on Egypt, the climactic plague, the... Surrender also, then, of Pharaoh to God's demands. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12. If you're in the West Hall, you'll find this on page 65 in the Bibles provided there, and if you're here in the main hall, you'll find this uh, with the Bibles provided there on page 70, Exodus chapter 12. While you're turning there, let me just remind you again that this is in the section of Exodus that recounts the famous ten plagues on Egypt and this is the culmination in Exodus 11 the Lord had warned about this final plague and Moses warned Pharaoh but Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites leave so we come to chapter 12 we want to answer four questions and we'll spend most of our time on the first question and you need to remember that otherwise when I say point two you're gonna be terrified Okay. We're going to spend most of our time on the first question. What is the Passover? Second question, what happens when you have no substitute? Third question, what happens when you have a substitute? And fourth question, who remembers the Passover? I pray that as we study this chapter together, we will better understand Jesus' life from Bethlehem to Calvary and our own. First then, what is the Passover? Answer, it is the benefit of God's passing over, judging someone, provided through a substitute. It is the benefit of God's passing over, judging someone, provided by a substitute. Let's begin reading in verse 1, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread." Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning." When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. We see here that the Lord instructs Moses about the Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all this especially about his people's need for a substitute. The substitute, the Passover lamb we see, will have to die. Here we have the origin of the oldest, the most ancient of all the Jewish festivals. It would be hard to get much deeper into the Bible's main storyline than right here. We see in verse 3 that the Lord instructs Moses to tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. A lamb would be needed, a lamb to die. Sacrificially, And do note here that it is the man, it's the husband, who is the father who has the responsibility to act for the whole family. This was a religious institution, the, the Passover celebration. But it wasn't entrusted to a church-like community, but to the family. The keeper of the religious patriotic traditions was not the state, nor the priesthood, but the fathers, the heads of the home. Now, this is not exactly the same in the New Testament. When we come to the New Testament, things have changed. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 18 tells about the new covenant in which each one answers for their own sins. Anyway, in verse 4, we see that it was important that there be enough so that everyone could participate. But not too much so that none is wasted. And this lamb was to be special. We see there in verse 5 that the lambs must be without defect could be either a sheep or a goat. But the fact is that it was to be without defect. And what does that make you think of? You remember when Peter was writing in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, Jesus is the one whom John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God. When John has this great vision in the Revelation, what does he see right in the center? But he says, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. See, all these images are reflecting from Passover. We read here in verse 6 of Exodus 12 that the lamb was to be sacrificed at twilight, And according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, that's when the Passover lambs would have been killed, at about 3 p.m., the same time that Jesus died on the cross. Something else we notice about this slain lamb is that its blood seems to be especially significant. We know from Leviticus 17 that blood symbolized the life of the victim and the life of those for whom it was substituted. It was this blood that was put around the entrance of the house, symbolically covering those within, whose blood rightfully should be shed as the penalty of their own sins. Then in verse 8, the Lord specifies still more about this meal. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. The bitter herbs were to recall the bitterness of their slavery, but this bitterness would be overwhelmed by the sweet taste of the lamb. And you see that reference there to the bread made without yeast? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 will use this as an image to mean without sin. That is, without known, unrepentant sin in the congregation. And he would call in the church to live in purity. And then in verse 9, some very specific instruction is given, which many have wondered about. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Why would the Lord give such specific instructions about how the the lamb is to be cooked? Well, perhaps eating raw meat was prohibited here on the one hand in contradistinction from some pagan festivals in which they would literally drink the blood and take in that, thinking they were somehow magically taking on the powers of the slain animal. The Lord wants there to be nothing like that to be understood to be going on in this sacrifice. On the other hand, the Lord was, was teaching them not that they would get magical powers from this, but he was teaching them about some spiritual realities like the connection of sin and death and preparing them for the planned Messiah who would come, who would be slain. He was teaching them some of the deep ways of God. They wouldn't have before them on their festival table a stew, but a whole lamb slain obviously before them showing that they as a community were dependent upon this one's life being taken then in verse 11 we see that the Israelites were to eat in a hurry and trembling with alarm at all that was going on and perhaps in anticipation this was this was the night of their deliverance of their liberation of their redemption of their salvation Passover, as I say, is the oldest of the Jewish festivals. It's really the sort of founding festival, the sort of July 4th celebration for the nation of Israel. It's fixed as clearly in the Old Testament mind as anything could be. And what is at the very center of that? The lamb without defect being slain for the life of others. And this meal was to keep their need... And God's provision, always in mind. So, did God intend the Passover lamb as a preview of Christ? Yes. He clearly intended it as a preview of Christ. First Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, Paul says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Christ is the only begotten Son of God, the seed of Abraham, but He is also the Passover lamb. The last supper itself was a Passover meal. You and I need deliverance from bondage and from the fatal judgment of God through the blood of the firstborn lamb without blemish. The Passover lamb was a
1: substitute for sinners. So too is the lamb of God. You see, this is done for
2: us, so that we will see and know and understand that God's people would be saved by a substitute. That's what God is teaching His people here in this Passover. That's what He's teaching them as He instructs Moses. You see, in verse 12, the Lord is clearest about what He's doing. Verse 12, "...on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals." And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of all, is executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The ones in whom the Egyptians' hopes rested were to be killed. And in such a way that there would be no natural explanation for it. This was to be clearly a divine judgment. The Lord would show publicly that the Egyptian gods were powerless to protect them in all the most important ways. And that, by the way, is why I think the animals may have been included as well, because many of the Egyptian gods were represented by animals. So the Lord was making it crystal clear that even these animals that you trust in some deified form, they can't protect you from the real God. In verse 13, the Lord explains his actions even more. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood is a sign of salvation for the Israelites. But notice that they too were obviously subject to God's wrath. Had you noticed that? They needed to be protected. The claims of God's justice did not only tell against the Egyptians, but against all people. Israelites as well and note God, God's claims would be dealt with by the shedding of blood so you see what's going on here deep in the story of the Bible we see that the lamb becomes a substitute for the Israelite firstborn and the application of its blood is the only way to salvation so while there's no explicit mention of the lamb bearing the sins of many that is implicit in the lamb bearing the punishment for their sins And those who are marked by the Lamb's blood being delivered from receiving the penalty they justly deserve. And so the death of the Passover Lamb was laying down part of the most basic vocabulary by which we were later to understand the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. Then in verses 14 to 20, the Lord instructs Moses about the Feast of Unleavened Bread by which they were to remember the results of the substitutes. They are to memorialize forever their deliverance that God has provided for them, that he's about to provide in the Exodus. And a Christian, what what does this remind you of? As you're seeing this memorial meal here. Well, it reminds me of the Last Supper. And this is clearly what's going on. In fact, remember, Jesus' sacrifice was made during the Passover festival. That was exactly what was happening at that time for a reason. The meal was made to aid the memory, as is the Lord's Supper, because in remembering what God has done for us, we come to believe God and what He promises He will do for us. Do you see that? In remembering what God has done for us, we come to believe what God has promised that He will do for us. And that's what the Lord here is making sure His people would do. That's why in verse 15 here, we might think this person who does something as insignificant as eating eating leavened bread in these days, why should they be treated so severely? It says, must be cut off from Israel. That's a very severe penalty. Well, why is this? Because beginning to not keep the festival, beginning to not just eat unleavened bread is beginning to forget the Lord's deliverance of his people, and is to lead them to stop worshiping the Lord. To forget what the Lord has done is a kind of blasphemy, a denial of God and his goodness. That's why they're so severe, because the Lord would make sure that the people always remember this night when they were delivered immediately by the power of God from their bondage. In verse 21, we see that Moses obeys the Lord in all this. He instructs the elders of the Israelites about the Passover, and by so doing, instructs them about their need for a substitute. You know, the Lord would only bring death if it was deserved. He is a good and just God. Well, what had the firstborn done so specially to deserve death? Nothing specially. But the firstborn stood for the whole. The firstborn stood for the others. They stood for the strength of the people. They stood for the the future hopes of the people. The Israelites did not deserve God's deliverance. That was pure mercy, as was this instruction to them about a substitute. And the Lord wanted them to forever remember what He, in His grace, had done for them. He had provided a substitute. So He gives them this meal and... And then this special week even to act as a reminder to them to teach successive generations the truth about God and his kindness to them and to help them reflect upon that each year to remind themselves. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus did for us in giving us baptism and the Lord's Supper? Baptism, that initial rite within the Lord's Supper, the repeated, reminding ourselves of the great deliverance that the Lord has wrought for us in saving us from our sins, delivering us from the penalty that we deserve? That's exactly what we see here. We read in verse 24, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. We obey these commands of Christ as a way of passing the gospel message on to the generations to come. How would they explain such actions? Well, they're going to have to know the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to make sense of these actions that we do. And so we obey, we continue to show that the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of all those who would trust in him. In verses 26 and 27, we clearly see this concern for the truth about God and his great acts being passed down to the generations to come. You know, the Lord is concerned about the children, even if we're not sometimes. He builds into the very structure of things, things that will go on, reminders that will go on beyond our generation. Because he cares about the rising generation and the generation to come. The Israelites were spared because the lamb was sacrificed. That's the story that keeping this meal tells people. And then in verses 27 and 28, we see the response of the people to all of this. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The two words are used synonymously, the parallel referring to the same thing. Verse 28, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is a kind of repentance and faith. They killed the animal. They had the meal. They they marked the doorposts as they had been told. They stayed in their houses. This obedience was a placing of their confidence in this requirement by God of substitutionary sacrifice for their redemption. They were showing that they had faith. They were doing what the Lord called them to do. My friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, realize that God is calling you to trust him. That one has been sacrificed to pay the penalty, to to bear the burden, to save you from God's judgment of your sins if you will trust in him if you will believe that that blood was shed for the likes of you. That's the message that this Passover account has for us. The Lord God made us all in his image. And yet we've all sinned against him. We all deserve to be judged even as we see here God was judging some of the Egyptians. We all deserve that totally and forever because of our Rebellion against him. But God, in his great love, caused his punishment to fall on Christ. The Son of God voluntarily laid down his life for us if we would trust him and repent of our sins. Friend, we can have that newness of life far better than any other gift you may be thinking of this time of year. We can have that newness of life, that entire trust in God with a rebuilt relationship with him as our loving Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is the Passover Lamb who was sacrificed for all who will repent and who will be his people. The Lamb without defect became our substitutionary sacrifice if we will trust in him. As John Stott has put it so well, the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. My contention is that substitution is not another theory or image to be set alongside the others, but rather the foundation of them all. Friend, if you would like to know how this language of substitution affects you in your life, what it should mean for you, talk to me at the door afterwards. I'll be standing back there at that door. I would love to stay longer and talk to you about this, to help you think about this more and understand this. Brothers and sisters, admire what God has done for us in Christ. All the more by His mere mercy. Look how He has provided a way back to Himself that we could never have done. We could never have thought this up, and even if we could have, we could never have executed it. We could never have made it happen. And yet God, in His kindness for us, His mercy towards us, has done all of this. Is He not kind uh, let's speak well of Jesus. Let us admire His exemplary life. But let us remember that we have nothing unless He is our substitute. If He has just come to teach us how to live, we all fail. and We all fail eternally. But if He has come to give Himself as our substitute, then we can give eternal praises to Him. Because He has come when we were utterly helpless, prostrate before God's just claims, and He has met them all for us. Praise God. But I can hear somebody say, I don't need a substitute. I don't think it's fair anyway. Everything I need to help me, I can get from reading my Bible and from my own interior sense of right and wrong or from reading and and watching others. friend." The point of the Christian good news is not so small a thing as to give us what we think we want. Do you know how some people get religious because they kind of want to use God to have a little bit more peace in their life? They just need a little moral sense of some forgiveness from God, a little sense of order, a little little religious kind of pick-me-up. That's not Christianity. If you've come to church this Sunday near Christmas, or maybe if you're a member of this church, and that's how you thought of Christianity, friend, that's, that's not really it. There is much better news out there than that. God has come not to provide what you think you want, what you think you need, a little peace and order in my life, a little hope in a, a dim and dismal time. No, God has come to meet a much deeper, a much more profound need than you may have even fully understood that you have. I love the way Jim Packer put it, contrasting our sort of lighter, man-centered Gospels with the biblical, old, God-centered Gospel. He says, without realizing it, we have during the past century bartered that Gospel, the biblical Gospel, for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is, as a whole, a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic Gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence, deep humility, a spirit of worship, a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concerned to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than is the new. But so to speak incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty in mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, The concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old gospel is God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. But friends, here in Exodus 12, we are introduced to the old gospel. The biblical story. God would deliver us. And you'll note here, not just as individuals, he delivers a whole community of people. And he has left us a communal act, a meal to remind us of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. And he has called us together to get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So what is Passover? The answer is, it is the benefit of God's passing over, judging someone. Provided through a substitute. On to the second question. What happens when you have no substitute? You are not passed over. You are judged. That's what we see in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. You see what's happened here. Judgment fell. Judgment fell. On the Egyptians, while God's people were delivered, not because they were inherently better or because their ethnicity protected them, but because of the substitute. The Lord judged Egypt, but passed over the sins of his people. In verse 29, his judgment of sinners is clear and terrible. From the highest to the lowest in society, the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And this was the decisive blow that gained the Israelites their freedom. Some have tried to suggest a natural explanation for this, like uh, the bubonic plague. But that doesn't explain the affliction taking only the firstborn. Now, friend, this was intended to be clearly understood as an act of God's judgment on Egypt. Pharaoh understood He grieved the penalty of God's judgment and sent the Israelites away. Look at verse 31. You can can feel the emotion. Up, leave, go. You notice Pharaoh's abrupt imperatives. Show something of his urgency. This was a terrible preview of the judgment that is to come of all of us. God is a good God. And because of that, he will judge us. This reminds us of God's sovereignty, of His goodness, and it reminds us of our need for a Savior. We need someone to deliver us from the penalty that we so richly deserve from a perfect God. Friends, do you see that? Do you see why if God is good, He would judge you? Oh, if you don't see that, pray that God will help you to see that. That is the best gift you could get ever. Pray that he will see, help you to see why, if God is good, he would judge you. If you're confused about that, ask me at the door, and I'll explain to you afterwards why I think if God is good, he would judge me. And I would love to help you think more about that yourself. Being convicted of your own sins is the starting point beginning a new relationship with God a reconciled relationship you know at that time Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth and yet national strength will protect no one from the power of God when it comes time for him to judge Jonathan Edwards as a very young man preached a sermon in New York City in that sermon he said that death serves all alike as he deals with the poor so he deals with the rich is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace, a numerous attendance, or a majestic countenance. Pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with his few compliments and his little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. Death is as rude with emperors as with beggars, and handles one with as much gentleness as the other. Friends, Christ is the only Savior. Admire The goodness of God to us in providing him for us as a substitute. Admire God's grace in us not getting what we deserve. All we have, we have then in Christ as a gift to us. And this is what we want to share with others. We are a community of the justly damned and the graciously forgiven in Jesus Christ. This is the news that we want to tell others about. Pray that we would be faithful in this, and that we would be fruitful in this as a congregation. What happens when you have no substitute? You are not passed by. You are not passed over, but judged. Another question, number three, what happens when you have a substitute? What happens when you have a substitute? You are passed over. You are passed over. Look at all the benefits that flow from the substitute. Look at verse 33. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went with them, as well as large droves of livestock both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of the time of the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord had kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil, to honor the Lord for the generations to come. God not only passed over those protected by the sign of the substitute, but he additionally blessed them with a speedy exodus and even with Egyptian gifts. We have here in verses 37 to 39 the historical account of their deliverance out of Egypt. This is the exodus. So any place in the Bible where you see the exodus referred to, this is it. This is the kernel of it right here. They left Egypt completely, directly, no half measures. And then in verses 40 to 42, we're called to remember this Passover. This this night, it, it just so happens, was the anniversary of their having first come down into Egypt. And God brings them out now in his own strength. Having used Egypt as a stage on which to show his power to the world, God was displaying himself and his own character and his merciful plans. So throughout the rest of the Bible until Calvary, this is the great act of God to save his people, the exodus. Friend, pray that you will understand something of the greatness of being delivered from the service of sin and from God's just charges against you. God is sovereign, even over the rise and fall of nations. And Christ is the deliverer He provided for all who will trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, pray that we not live as those who have not been delivered. Let's marvel at the substitute that God has provided for us, at the the way out He has made, and let's thank God for it. As a church, we celebrate our deliverance by God, not ourselves. We don't come together to pat each other on our religious backs. We come together delighted and a little surprised that God would save us and that He has saved us as He has. We rejoice at what God has done for us. What happens when you have a substitute? You are Passover. Last question, number four. Who remembers the Passover? Who remembers the Passover? Look at verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Here the Lord instructs Moses about how to remind people about the Passover gained by the substitute. And God does this as he instructs Moses on who is to partake of the supper, The Lord seems to have a great concern about this, about who will partake of the supper. This meal, then, is held, you see, in verse 46, inside one house. Perhaps if they went outside, they would not have such control over who partook of the meal. Anyway, the detail there in verse 46, do not break any of the bones, is significant. He told them to do that so that it would be presented, as I say, as a whole on the table before them so that they would understand that they together were all taking of the same substitute and of course we know that john tells us in john's gospel john nineteen verse thirty six that on the cross quite unusually for one crucified that none of jesus bones were broken he told us this to point again to the fact that jesus is our passover lamb they were not to break the substitute up and Take it in smaller units. And so today, in the church community as a whole, we take the Lord's Supper as a whole. We don't take it in our small groups. We don't take it in our family units. We come together as a whole, as a congregation, to take the Lord's Supper. Edwards reflects again on the community that we've been brought into by Christ's sacrifice. Christ has brought it to pass that those whom the Father has given him should be brought into the household of God. That he and his father and his people should be as one society, one family. That the church should be, as it were, admitted into the society of the blessed trinity. And did you notice there in verse 48 that from the very beginning a way was made to include non-Israelites? Please don't misunderstand this. It's fundamentally an ethnic religion. No, there, there are no social restrictions, no ethnic restrictions. The word translated slave there in verse 44 is a little misleading. It's the word eved. It simply means servant, any sort of worker, what we might call today generally an employee or a hired hand. The point of this meal was to include those who define themselves as trusting in God and his promises and to exclude those who merely happen to be in the physical vicinity at mealtime. This meal was about more than their physical hum- hunger. And therefore God was very particular about who was to be included and who was to be excluded. They were not to be merely or primarily an ethnic community. All who would repent and believe would be included in the substitute then and now. God was building a community to display his character to all of creation. My friend, what do you do about remembering God's deliverances? Are you active in that or just fairly passive, whatever happens to come to mind? Do you read the Bible and note His goodness is here in Scripture? Do you read the history of His church and see God's kindnesses stretched out across the ages? Do you talk with other people and search out God's goodnesses as we see them in the lives of others? Do you keep and collect those goodnesses God has shown you in your own life? Make note of them in your own mind. Share them with others. Bring Him glory. Why would we so quickly forget and even ignore God's best gifts to us? I love Spurgeon's exhortation to elderly saints to talk about the goodness of God. He says, Do not die, O ye grayheads, ye who have passed your three, four years in ten. Do not pass away from this earth with all those pleasant memories of God's loving kindness to be buried with you in your coffin. But let your children and your children's children know what the everlasting God did for you. Friends, as a congregation, we want to be faithful like these people to whom the Passover was committed, that we remember God's great goodnesses in our lives, and we tell them to others. We want to be marked by that. We know as a congregation we are called to be like this Passover meal here, both inclusive and exclusive. We want to be exclusive. This, the meal is only for those who have known God's love in Christ. But we want to be inclusive, inclusive of as many of those as we can be. So we are a community defined not by ethnicity, but by repentance and faith in God's promises, and by gratitude. Because most of us, you know, are the foreigners at the table. That's us. Who remembers the Passover? We do. We considered a couple of weeks ago Professor Geza Vermesh's query. Why was Jesus executed? Had he not been responsible for the fracas in the temple of Jerusalem at Passover time, when Jewish tradition expected the Messiah to reveal himself, very likely Jesus would have escaped with his life. Doing the wrong thing in the wrong place and in the wrong season resulted in the tragic death of Jesus on the Roman cross. With all due respect, Professor Vermesh, the wrong thing the wrong thing how can we possibly consider Jesus coming and presenting himself as the one who was laying down his life as a ransom for many and doing so deliberately at the time of the Passover to use the rich imagery made by the triune God Father Son and Holy Spirit that he had designed from eternity past to help us understand what Christ was doing in dying on the cross, how could we possibly consider that doing the wrong thing at the wrong time? Well, he may be a professor of some things, but he's not very good at understanding what Almighty God is doing. We can join with Christians from all ages in praising God for passing over our sins because of Christ. Friends, this idea of penal substitution is nothing new. It is as old as the Passover. We agree with these words written by a Christian in the very first generation after the Apostles. When our iniquity had come to its full height. And it was clear beyond all mistaking that retribution in the form of punishment and death must be looked for. The hour arrived in which God had determined... To make known from then onwards his loving kindness and his power. How surpassing is the love and tenderness of God. In that hour, instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickedness is against us, he showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us. And in pity, he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except His righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy, and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked. Let's pray together. O Lord God, we do stand amazed at your ancient plan of redemption for us. O Lord, that one holy should be able to hide the sins of multitudes and that one holy should be able to sanctify countless wicked. O Lord, we acknowledge that one holy to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God slain for us. O oh Lord, as we think of Bethlehem, we see in that manger all the love of Calvary. We thank you for your matchless love for us. We remember, and Lord, we celebrate in Jesus' name.